Social scientists have generally understood medicalization as a process that obscures the true social nature of certain behaviors and problems. Demedicalization of a set of behaviors is therefore thought of as an advance, with the original medicalization attributed perhaps to cultural ignorance. But demedicalization can also result in reduced options for patients when their problems are no longer thought to be part of the domain of medical practice. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Joel Braslow, a professor of psychiatry and biobehavioral sciences and history at the University of California, Los Angeles. Dr. Braslow has co-authored a perspective article about medicalization and demedicalization as part of the journal's Case Studies in Social Medicine series. Dr. Braslow, in your article, you described the case of a mentally ill homeless man who was discharged from the hospital after an initial decision that the only way to treat his complex disease was to hospitalize him. So how often do physicians disagree about whether a patient's problems are medical? And how do those perceptions affect the care of that patient? I think the bigger problem is not so much disagreement, but consensus in some sense, in terms of shifting what had once been, at least historically, something that would be relatively unheard of to something that's normalized and an everyday practice. So in the case of a patient coming into the emergency room, for example, who is gravely disabled insofar as they're unable to find food, clothing, or shelter, and that's quite a frequent occurrence. And it's Given the difficulties in finding inpatient beds, as well as this gradual redefinition of what constitutes grave disability so that when someone's homeless, we don't consider them necessarily gravely disabled, despite the fact that their psychotic disorder is driving their inability to find shelter or to be housed or to function within contemporary society. So what is the most common instance is that we and myself included, that generally speaking, if someone comes into the emergency room that is homeless, it has been increasingly a frequent practice, even despite the fact that they're really psychotic, that we would not admit them into the hospital and that we would consider their homelessness, while deeply unfortunate, something that we simply can't address by hospitalization. So probably in the last decade or so, As a psychiatrist who is on call often for the emergency room, what I've been experiencing is this increasing dis-ease at defining psychotic patients who come into the hospital or come into the emergency room, rather, who have been unable to function because of their psychosis and to deem them not needing acute care and then just discharging them back onto the street. Looking at psychosis, you describe in the article the medicalization of what we now call psychosis that first resulted in the creation of asylums, later called state hospitals, and then finally that trend towards state hospital care was reversed. What were the consequences of that shift in thinking? I think the most readily obvious is in Los Angeles, I think, kind of represents it in most really sharp relief is just the growing number of homeless individuals who have a psychotic disorder, as well as the growing number of individuals who have serious mental illness who are being incarcerated in L.A. County Jail. And these are phenomena that are national in scope, but in L.A., it's very concentrated in terms of we have the largest county jail in the country and about somewhere between around 17 to 20,000 inmates on any given day. 
and then the percentage, even though the inmate population in the jail has been declining, those with serious mental illness has been increasing ever since the 1970s. And in L.A. County Jail, it's the proportion of those with serious mental illness in the jail on any given day is probably around 5,000 inmates, and they're housed in what's called Twin Towers, which is across the street from Min Central Jail, which has the remaining 12,000 or so inmates. But so the consequence of deinstitutionalization is really complicated, but not only do you have a growing number of people who are homeless and who often end up becoming incarcerated is that the social safety net has also been fraying, especially acutely in California and Los Angeles from the 80s onward. So the demedicalization of chronic mental illness has allowed physicians to narrow the disease aspects for which they consider themselves responsible. What other factors are contributing to the changed physician role in this area? So if we take the period of time from the near the end of the 1950s, extending into the mid to late 1960s, the ways in which psychiatry saw serious mental illness or psychiatric disorder in general was much more informed by a psychodynamic perspective that also took into account much more explicitly both one's history growing up as well as your social and cultural context in shaping illness. And since the early 1970s, there's been a growing, understandably, trend towards understanding the biological nature of psychiatric disorder and simultaneously with the growth of psychopharmacology, even though antipsychotic drugs or Thorazine was first synthesized in 1950 and then introduced into psychiatric hospitals in 1954-55. The widespread and intensive use of antipsychotic drugs, even though they began in the mid to late 1950s and into the 1960s, as state hospitals started to empty as a consequence of a variety of factors ranging from the passage of Medicaid and Medicare and increasing use of antipsychotic drugs, for example, in hospitals. There's an increasing belief in the biological nature of illness, which tended to exclude social factors related to the causation of illness, but also seeing the social as inability to function in the world as a direct consequence of illness, or at least something that we as psychiatrists are directly responsible for. What about remedicalization? Has that or any other solution been successful at reversing some of the harms of demedicalization? At least thinking about how would one reverse the demedicalization of serious mental illness, I do think an important part of that would be reconsidering the direct relationship between the psychotic illness, for example, and our responsibility for caring for individuals beyond simply prescribing medications, but thinking more seriously about the need for housing, for creating psychosocial interventions, and a less alienated and alienating context for people to live that in which medical and psychiatric care are better integrated. And I think also in medicine, obviously, the relationship between social context and all medical illnesses are closely related. So thinking about even within using Medicaid funds for housing, whether or not you have a serious mental illness or a serious medical illness. 
but the importance of having social resources for caring for the illness. What has struck me is that I walk to work every day, and I live in Westwood, which is a fairly wealthy area of Los Angeles. And probably over the last decade, what has become increasingly distressing just as a walk to work and walk to the Resnick Psychiatric Hospital and to the Semmel Neuropsychiatric Institute. The number of homeless individuals is very high in our neighborhood. And there is this irony that we're walking to the Ronald Reagan Medical Center and walking and really trying not to have eye contact or with individuals who are really psychotic, clearly who are on the street, and this sense of dissonance, internal dissonance, where you're seeing the sickest individuals, at least in terms of psychiatry and also in terms of medically, because they're often very medically ill as well, who are huddled somewhere on the street corner and or in the alleys. And the irony of our sickest patients just being left on the streets and where we, as a physician, try to avoid any responsibility for that, even in an everyday kind of sense. And so that part has been increasingly distressing in some ways and kind of making me wonder and, and thinking seriously about how is it that we've been able to abandon our sickest patients and that we've seen it getting progressively worse in terms of both the homelessness and the criminalization, especially in Los Angeles. And then where's the solution? Right, exactly. But in part, what we've done, though, is, and this has to do with, I think, the way in which ideology works insofar as that the solution, at least from the mid-19th century to near the end of the 20th century, had been fairly effective insofar as we had created a set of institutions that took complete responsibility for an individual who was unable to function in the world. And that so much of the writings about those institutions from the 70s onward have been very critical, not empirically based, but really driven by a certain belief about how dependency on institutions creates its own evils without a really strong empirical basis, if that's even true. And then furthermore, then kind of looking at the nature, at least the state hospitals, for the most part, while there are many abuses, they certainly are less abusive than the consequence of not having them. So much of the political economy and the ideology of the way in which our beliefs about the responsibility of the state and state governments to care for individuals has changed quite dramatically over the last 50 years. I mean, that's the largest factor. And I think if we look at deinstitutionalization, states used a quarter of their budget usually or often prior to the 1950s, 60s on mental health care and especially running these massive state hospitals that had 550,000 patients at any one time in the mid-1950s. And with the Vietnam War and a growing recession at the end of the 60s, there was an increasing motivation to try to empty these institutions and to decrease costs. And Medicaid and Medicare certainly aided and abetted that. Finally, what can be done on an individual physician level? Well, I think what has struck me is how when we're caring for patients, and it's best I'm thinking in terms of examples, where it is often easy to confuse caring for your individual patient on the one hand and then thinking about questions about trying to care for an entire population where you're trying to save 
resources for those who you think will benefit more than, for example, someone who has a chronic disorder and especially someone who has a chronic psychotic disorder. And forgetting, actually, that your responsibility is to care for the patient who's in front of you. I do think that trying to take more responsibility for the individual patient and thinking about their social context is that it'll help one make decisions that are more clearly rooted in alleviating the patient's suffering as opposed to misrecognizing something that is genuinely medical, but thinking it's really just not the responsibility of a physician. Thank you, Dr. Breslow.